Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is the Al and Lingy Show. Brilliant tap work, Gresham. Curling, curling! Magnificent all round! Oh, this is just a leap by Paddy Ryder. Stokes down low, Corey to Ling, and then Ling goes bang! And the captain, as he did last week from about there, kicks the goal. And then there were four, and unexpectedly, Brisbane was one of them. Melbourne's premiership defence comes to an end in straight sets. Collingwood goes through. Craig McRae's Magpies, one win away from making a grand final, which would be an extraordinary performance after finishing second last year at the Magpies. Hello and welcome to the Al and Lingy show. Cameron Ling just got to put his feet up and watch all the carnage, all the action as his Geelong boys awaited their opponent. That opponent will be the Brisbane Lions, Lingy, and they all of a sudden look far more of, the, more of a threat than they did a couple of weeks ago. I oh, think they were good, weren't they, Al? They were outstanding on Friday night. I mean, so were Collingwood, apart from some bad kicking for goal, but they dominated the Dockers. So the two semi-final winning teams hit the prelims in form, but the Swans and the Cats were ultra impressive as well. It's it's an outstanding couple of groupings. I And even the history of them, we've had some brilliant clashes between Geelong and Brisbane in prelim finals. There was one a couple of years ago. I played in one in 2004 that was decided by eight points where Lee Matthews was fuming that one preliminary final still had to be played at the MCG and his Lions, who finished above us, got had to play at the MCG and he still holds on to that one even years and years <laughs> later. And Collingwood and Sydney have just had great clash after great clash and it was Tony Lockett kicking the record-breaking goal against Collingwood. There's all these moments of the Swans and the Pies. So it's prelim final week, which is, for the pure footy fan, the greatest weekend of the entire year. The grand final is brilliant and we'll remember those grand finals, but you get two games with the four best teams of just packed houses with pure footy fans. I love prelim final weekend, Al. And they so often bring about brilliant games as well, don't they, Lingy? The Brisbane Lions, I went to the game on Friday night and the early stages, I think Noah Answorth had it on the halfback flank first few seconds of the game, long down the line, Harrison Petty intercepts the ball. And you think, I've seen this horror movie before. I've seen this all unfold before. And the way Melbourne started that game and with the history against Brisbane this season, it, it literally looked like they were going to win the game by 10 goals. But into the second quarter, Brisbane just started to neutralise that game a little bit. You could sense that, that they were getting into the game and the way they turned it around was, was phenomenal. But... I noticed that they weren't prepared to kick the ball as high. They were keen to kick it lower. So whether it be McStay hitting Hipwood on the lead, hard and low, or just a, a chaos ball inside the 50, there seemed to be a significant shift in the way they were playing in that regard going into the second quarter, as well as just a pure ferocity. Their pressure went through the roof. It, it did, Al. I'm interested, though. Your first quarter take is on, on this movie was one perspective. I wonder if some 
Others in the audience sitting there in that cinema had a little different perspective on that horror show that you're talking about. And that was Melbourne fans, where throughout the second half of the season, they have seen their team absolutely dominate games, completely obliterate the opposition at the contested ball, take intercept marks galore, but only ever turn it into three or four goals. And that, I think Melbourne fans were sitting there thinking, oh, no, here we go again. That was a domination and they kicked three goals from it. So the ease of scoring was never there and it's never been there all year. And to Brisbane's credit, they reversed the contested ball. They were smarter with the ball, as you're saying, going forward. But the game should have been over. It should have been eight goals to one early in the second quarter and the game's done and dusted. But again, Melbourne keep their opposition in the game by a lack of efficiency going forward and some poor kicking for goal. And Brisbane felt it. They felt like they only had to tinker a couple of things and they were well and truly back in. And, and then you're right. It was some, some heroic performances by certain players that then lifted it above again. Jared Berry, who may or may not play this week, was unbelievable in that second half. That is one of the most superb performances I've seen in a final. To have the balance of beating one of the best mids in the competition, but found the footy, got it inside 50, clearances, everything. Lockie Neal was, I reckon, reasonably well held in the first half. Absolutely. I think he had nine disposals to halftime. Yeah. And then he just said, "Uh, hang on, don't forget, I'm one of the very, very best in the competition. I'll I'll swing this round. Eric Hipwood, I reckon Brisbane Lions fans, and throw me into that group as well, have just been tearing our hair out over the years about how inconsistent Eric can be. Well, he stood up and was massive. Charlie Cameron bobs up, kicks a few. Zach Bailey, as he so often does, uh, does in games, when it really matters most, he kicks two goals in the last quarter. So some of their performances were outstanding, but Melbourne left that door ajar like they've done all year. And Brisbane, they didn't just sneak through the door. They kicked it down and went straight on through. So well played. So... What is it with Melbourne? Did they lose the killer instinct? You look at their, their form throughout the first 10 rounds. They win their opening 10 games of the season and then they win only six of their last 14. And so many times in the latter stages of the season, we're in a position where they led by three or four goals over opposition, let them back in and at times were beaten by sides that you thought that they had the measure of. So it feels like a pretty significant fall from a side that were, we, we were talking about on this podcast and, and many others were in all sorts of other forums as unbeatable. Yep. Um, it was Melbourne then daylight, wasn't it? We said that numerous times. And we said at different times there were others in second spot and then maybe there's a little bit of a group there and here and there, but it was always Melbourne then daylight. Al, I have to wonder, and I'm interested in your take on this one as well. When you... When you're able to win a premiership and what Melbourne did last year, you need contributions from everyone. You need a total buy-in to every single role that goes towards winning a premiership. You need your stars playing great football. You need your, your really good players stepping up and having big games. You need your role players embracing hard defensive running, like shutting down an opposition player, um, playing a, a bit pressure role in the forward line, whatever it might be. So, all 22 or in some cases, 23 players contributing. I have to wonder if what went on in the middle of the year with Stephen May and Jake Melksham and that massive blow up, that fight and everything like that, as good as and as strong a personality as Jake Melksham was to come back and play really good footy and Stephen May to do the same. 
you just have to wonder if it's had an impact on the mindset of the entire group because their bottom, let's call it bottom six players, Al, in the two finals were terrible, Melbourne. They were a million miles off the mark. So was it just that they were tired? Was it just that they didn't understand their role anymore? Or was it more than that? And there was a, a slight fracturing in the group that come finals time, as Simon Goodwin said, your vulnerabilities get exposed. And was those vulnerabilities actually the unity of the group? You have to I wonder I was going to ask you this very question, Lingyen, and you, you've been in these environments at football clubs and would understand whether or not there can be a degree of disharmony or players who don't get on very well. I mean, you had the, the classic case of Stevie Johnson and Paul Chapman to contend with, but that still seemed to work. It, it would appear that within the Melbourne camp, there were perhaps a couple of individuals who weren't getting along. Naturally, an event like took place in the middle of the year is, is going to have an effect on players within a group and, and threaten that that team harmony, but does, does it matter when you run out on the field, does whether you get along with the left half back or the right half back really impact performance? How real is it? Uh, Melbourne people and Melbourne coaches and Melbourne players will brush all this off out if they're, if they're asked and that, and that's fine. That's, that is their, that's their job. Just brush it off and, and stay strong. We'll build towards next year. But to answer your question, the individuals don't have to get along. No. Stevie and Chappie, they've been public about it, so I don't mind mentioning them. We had another couple of players in, in our group who did not like each other, still probably don't to this day. That They were fine with training and playing together because they understood that they had to push all that aside to do what the team needed of them. But it's also those around those players. Now, sometimes, so Stephen May and Jake Melchin, with their performances they delivered in the second half of the year, both showed that they a maturity and a mental strength to say, this has happened, dealt with it, let's get on with things. But I just wonder if those around the periphery who are still playing in the senior team or maybe in the, in the VFL but trying to push up, you know, you, you can't help but take sides a little bit or you can't help but sit back and go, yeah, but hang on, more should have been done. Or, you know, why does he get away with that sort of – just little questions – and when things aren't going perfectly as a team and the results aren't clicking as smoothly as what they had been in the first half of the year, all of those little conversations or all of those little just, oh, why is he allowed to do that comments get magnified. So it's not necessarily the two guys who may not like each other who've actually realised, yeah, we need to set this all aside and get on with the job. It can be others in the group. And that's where... There's lots of little tiny fractures that perhaps get exposed when things get really big in finals. And, and I'm only, I'm just thinking out loud here with this, but it just feels like that a little bit to me because Melbourne's bottom six last year were unbelievable, Al. The, the embrace, embracing of everything that they had to do. You, you name the players, they, they were superb at every element of the game. That's what got them a premiership. It wasn't there in the final. Sydney exposed it, and Brisbane, particularly in that second half, they ripped it open. So what? just a few things within the game then. So Daniel Rich, penetrating kick, does so much damage for Brisbane off the half-back line. Obviously, you don't want the ball in his hands. Daniel Rich had 25 kicks. Yep. Can't answer this final. question now. I cannot answer it. How was that allowed to happen? 
Well, I, so I was watching it. I was working for um, for radio, ABC, uh, Grandstand, and throughout the night I was watching it closely. It was off Christian Petrarca playing as what you'd call the um, the high half forward who was pushing up to stoppages. It was off Jack Viney who was doing the same thing. So when Petrarca's on ball, Viney was doing it. So it was a comfort level where Rich is, I'm comfortable with them having the extra number of this player coming up to the ball and I'll sit and do what I do best, which is intercept or get a handball receive or a scrubby kick, I'll pick it up and I'll distribute. Kick here, kick there, beautiful. Enough's been spoken about Daniel Rich about how good a ball user he is. What I can't answer, Al, is when you've got a player like Jake Melksham in your forward line who can play a defensive forward role and play it really, really well. And in the second half of the year, played it well, but also hit the scoreboard. Why on earth you wouldn't send him to Rich? I would have had him on him at the start of the game, let alone once Rich started getting kicks galore. Melksham had a shocker in the first final because he did. He was a bit lost. He didn't really have a, a role. They didn't play him on Jake Lloyd or they didn't play him on Nick Blakey. And then week two looked just as lost but he would have been the perfect one to send to Daniel Rich. Instead, Rich was able to sit and just run his own show back there, 25 kicks, five handballs, and a, and a total comfort level for the rest of his teammates that Rich will get this, he'll go bang with his beautiful kick, and away we go again. I, I can't answer that question why he was allowed to do that. It, it baffles me. And Brisbane, we'd all put a line through Brisbane um, based on their back end to the season, their inability to win at the MCG and then their record against Melbourne as well. But for them to produce what they did, that showed so much character because they they won it the hard way, Lingy. They, they rolled their sleeves up and got physical and against a team that's renowned for doing it to you, that, they absolutely ran roughshod over Melbourne in, in that area, the physicality, the hunt for the ball. So many times you just saw a Brisbane Lions player crash in and, and win the ball just through sheer will and determination. It was, it felt like some sort of switch had been flicked at Brisbane and you have to wonder now what that means for them for whatever remains of their season. Can they replicate that again? Because that was, that was finals footy, absolutely 101 finals footy. Yeah, it's funny listening to Chris Fagan after the game. He's right. The lessons you've learned across the finals that have, haven't gone well over the last few years for the Lions, I felt it came out in that second half. It, it, a, a switch isn't just flicked because it takes a long, you know, overnight success often takes years and years and years. But it, it was like they realised, oh, that's the level we have to sustain to win finals. And they got there and they stayed there. Funnily enough, Al, I, I think, one of the players who drove it best and, and almost epitomizes everything you're talking about, possibly doesn't even play next week. And that's Darcy Ford. Darcy Ford, yeah. Well, I mean, that was Herculean, that performance against Max Gorn and Luke Jackson. And he was, he got his knees dirty on the ground. He kicked an important goal. He fought and scrapped in the ruck to make sure the ball came to ground. He did everything that you're talking about. Um, and he just, he, he got the late call-up, or not the late call-up, but Oscar McInerney goes down with concussion. I mean, that was pretty special. Jared Berry's performance was truly special on uh, on Clayton Oliver in the second half. But, but you're right, across the entire ground, there were bodies going everywhere and they did not let up and eventually broke Melbourne. And they're a team that we've seen break others so yeah. often. It was, it was brilliant play. 
I just thought they had so many winners. I didn't even think Devin Robertson was doing a particularly bad <laughs> job on Clayton Oliver when Barry was given the responsibility. And you look at guys like McStay, what he was able to produce, some of his dart low kicks onto the lead of, of Hipwood, superb. Um, even young Darcy Wilmot, 20 pressure acts within the game for this second gamer and his celebration in the aftermath was hilarious and full of energy and uh, a bit infectious really <laughs> but Hugh McCluggage was a key driver Neil worked his way into the game we've spoken about Rich I thought Zorko given you know what had occurred in the previous match at the Gabba against Melbourne acquitted himself really well it was a it was such an eye-catching performance from Brisbane. Can I throw in two Al and, and it seems obvious because he's one of the most high-profile players in their team but Charlie Cameron I thought Michael Hibbard could not have done anything more to beat Charlie Cameron. I thought Hibbard's defensive performance was outstanding. And yet Cameron worked here, there, everywhere across that ground, got to every single front and square, worked back to a goal square. Led. His running, his work rate, his intensity just went from start to finish to end up with five touches, but to kick three goals three of the most crucial goals in a game like that. It, it's the old thing about, you know, when you have the greatest game on earth and you, you put all your edits together and you get them all clipped up into, into um, the, the times where you feature in the game, even the greatest game, it lasts for about two minutes, that all clipped up. So the coach will always ask, and Bomber Thompson used to do it to us, what else are you doing for the other 118 minutes in a game where you're helping the team? Well, chat. Charlie Cameron, probably when you clip up what his, his great moments, his five touches or his three goals, it goes for about 15 seconds. But what he did for the other 119 minutes and 45 seconds was superb to end up with those three goals and get his team across the line. And Michael Hibbert couldn't have done much more, I don't reckon. But Charlie Cameron's work rate got him those crucial moments. So, Everything like that went into them winning and, and they thoroughly deserved their spot in the prelim. It, it was a, a great display. So onto the, the topic of Jared Berry and his altercation with Clayton Oliver, offered a one-match ban for making unnecessary contact with the eye region and deemed as deliberate. What do you think the chances are of Brisbane being able to get that down to careless? They will challenge this. The Lions yep. are going to challenge this and try and get their key midfielder off. Uh, what are... So, so his argument, Al, has got to be, well, Clayton Oliver had his forearm on my head or my throat or my chest, whatever it was, and I was pinned, and all I wanted to do was get him off. And I just lashed out at whatever I could, and whatever was in front of me, I, I was pushing and scrapping and all that. That's going to be his argument. Um, he needs to turn it into, was it careless, is what he's got to turn it yeah. into? Yeah. That gets him a fine. It gets him a fine. There's some argument there, I think. Um, I think that when somebody who's 90-odd kilos like Clayton Oliver and a big powerful beast is on top of you and is wrestling you and has got you covered, you, you, are, you do try and do everything you can to just get him off. Um, is he going to get off? I don't know. Only on precedent, it seems like... I think somebody said it really well. You don't have to prove eye gouging. It's just got to be that unnecessary and unreasonable contact to the eye region. Um, he, he did make contact with the eye region. They look, they frown on that completely. I, I don't, I, I, I hate to see him miss a, a final for that, for that one moment of just 
madness, but also would have been panic and just or just get off sort of thing. Oh, I'd love to see him end up with a fine, but I don't know if he does. What What are your thoughts? Do you reckon? I, I think he'll get off. Yeah, I, I do think that he could prosecute the case that he did not intentionally grab at the eye. And yes, when it's slowed down and the eye goes in and, and scrapes across the face, it looks bad. In fast motion, it to me, it looks like Oliver has Berry down. Berry throws the arm out, tries to rip Oliver's head out of the way. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, he scrapes his hand across the eye. Yes, the action occurred, but the intent, I think, is the thing that you could argue is, and this is what they will try and argue, that it wasn't intentional. And I don't think Jared Berry in his right mind would intentionally gouge at the eye of Clayton Oliver in, in that way. I think he's a scrupulously fair player, Berry. So I think they should be able to argue that. And, and the argument also would be that I think they'll try and prosecute is that Berry isn't actually looking at Oliver or his eye at the time. So... Yeah, that, that's going to be an interesting one um, and totally understand why Brisbane will be going down this path because he, he can be such an important player for them in, in this preliminary final where all of a sudden many of us didn't expect them to get their one. But now I actually find myself giving them a, a fighting chance of winning it, Lingy, which I, I didn't think was possible given the way they'd ended the season. Yeah, well, you start going through the matchups, don't you, Alan? You think, okay, it probably advantaged Geelong in Geelong's forward line against that Brisbane defence, but then match the midfield up. It's very, very even, and um, they've got Lockie Neal. Um, they've got uh, Hugh McCluggage in terrific form. They've got Jared Berry coming off a monster game, perhaps. And then the Brisbane forward line. You think, well, Joey Danaher comes back, and congratulations to him and Adele for the, the birth of their daughter. And um, it's... You think, well, okay, so De Koning probably goes to Danaher. Henry perhaps goes to Hipwood. Uh, Buse maybe to Charlie Cameron. They've tried Stewart in the past and it hasn't worked. But it, what, what I'm trying to say is eventually Stewart has to play on a, a really dangerous player. So Stewart can't run his own race with that Brisbane forward line and just dictate positions. Harris Andrews, apart from the odd push in the back where uh, Harris Andrews was robbed of some free kicks, has done really well against Tom Hawkins. Um, all the matchups across the ground it makes you start thinking. Actually, this this don't don't just put this one in the book. This is so a there, really there's great a little bit of talk around selection. So obviously Darcy Fort, you'd think McInerney's going to come in and take his place. But what about Reece Stanley? Is Reece Stanley's position guaranteed? There's been a bit of a suggestion that maybe a John Segler, who did play well the last time he he was out there for Geelong, might get an opportunity in preference of Stanley. Would you support that, Lee? I. I and I'm only guessing, I know nothing here. Um, I'm not privy to anything, is that would only happen if Stanley, the injury concern was more than what they're letting on. I think a fit Reese Stanley has earned the right to play in this final. Um, he wasn't he wasn't at his best in that first final, but I think his year has been very, very consistent and he's worked really hard. Um, I, I think he provided, again, that the injury is okay, that he's been putting up with for, for a few weeks. I think he gets the shot. Johnny Segler certainly put his hand up and said, if you want someone who's just going to scrap and fight and do everything he can, um, pro- probably what Darcy Fort did on the weekend, I'm here and I'm ready. And if Reese doesn't come up body-wise, but I'd be very, very surprised if Reese Stanley didn't play in the ruck for the Cats unless that injury is worse than we all think. And does Mark O'Connor have to 
get off the substitutes bench and take Lockie Neal. What Blitzarves could maybe play that role. I'm not sure he's a much taller player. Atkins potentially in the middle of the ground. What would you do there with Lockie Neal? That's probably the bigger question for me around selection is, so I, I kind of started as the Medi sub against Collingwood, came on early because Colin Jasney got hurt. We, 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 from what I've heard, Colin Jasney's fine and he'll be right to go. I think you have to tag Lockie Neal. The first half again on Friday night showed what you can do. Brayshaw was very good on Neal and Brisbane were struggling a little bit to really get their game going. Neil lights up along with Barry and, and McCluggage and these types of players, but Leo, Neil gets going. His third quarter was massive for the Lions. I think 11 touches, five clearances, just a heap of the footy was superb. Brisbane are back in the game. So he, I think you have to try and put Neil away. O'Connor's had success on him. You could do it with Blitzars, but I don't know if the Neil matchup is suits Blitzarves as well. I think he's better on your, your Crips or your Oliver or these bigger bodied ones who are really take the ball, fight arms free release or, you know, use their power to push off. Neil is that super fast feet, just hunt the footy at ground level, just getting after it. I don't know if that's Blitzarves' perfect matchup. So I'm waffling on here, Al, but I think I'm leaning towards... O'Connor coming in purely to take Neil. I don't know who that leaves out. Mm. Maybe, yeah, it's going to be someone very, very unlucky. And Parfitt still didn't play in the last game, so he's still a chance to come back in as well. But, yeah, I, I think Neil's too important to Brisbane to not put somebody on him and try and blunt his influence. Any concerns for you about the week off for Geelong? The fact that they have by they play a final, they have another week off? Um maybe, but I, I think clubs have got better at it over the last four or five years. I think when that that post or pre-finals buy, sorry, um, first came in, I think straight away both resting teams in the prelim might have got beaten from memory or there might have been a couple of years where there were a number of teams who'd had the, the week off again because they'd won their qualifying final, lost the prelims. But I think since then teams have started to work it out and what their training block and their training week looks like that I think it's okay. From what I hear in their hit out on Friday, um, Jeremy Cameron, I don't think took part. So, you know, it's, it's allowed Jeremy Cameron as good as he was against Collingwood to get, to get his hammy right and get fresher again. I think Dangerfield did about 50% of it. So some of those older players, it's still got to be valuable having, having that week off and, if you're not ready to go on a Friday night at the MCG in a prelim, well, you're not really, you're not ever going to be ready to go. <laughs> I think everyone's going to be ready. I think that's going to be a, yeah, that'll be such a good game now. I think if Brisbane can bring what they, they brought against Melbourne, that's, that's absolutely game on, I reckon now at the G on Friday night. Uh, Collingwood, gee, they made an early statement against Fremantle, a bit of a feeling and David Mundy articulated as much in the aftermath that they, they were just a bit shell-shocked. They, they were a bit overawed by the occasion. When you've got 90,000 at the MCG and probably 85,000 of them are barracking for Collingwood and they're the noisiest in the business just about, I can understand that. But Collingwood's so good and, and you couldn't discredit their performance against Geelong to start with. So it feels like Collingwood is at the very least where it deserves to be based on the body of work it's done throughout the season. And and this rise under Craig McRae continues and, and possibilities are, are endless, only endless in the sense that it could actually end with a premiership. It, it could. No, they they 
they were brilliant. I mean, aside from the odd bad kicking for goal where they could have won the game by 10 or 12 goals, um, they, they're just so quick in their, their ability to squeeze up on the opposition. You felt Fremantle get the ball and then just oh, someone was right there and it was backwards and then it was backwards and then it was backwards again. And Collingwood just keep coming and it plays into their hands. They get a turnover and they score. Um, they didn't always score goals, as I said, but they were just all over them. It was dominant. Um, I think Fremantle, as their evolution takes place, this was a huge step for them. A great win last week. Ability to fight through a final that didn't start well. Um, and then they experienced 90-odd thousand at the G, um, a very, very hostile crowd. They'll go away from this so much better prepared for what the next two, three, four years hold for them. Justin Longmuir has done a great job. Um, congratulations to uh, our man, Dave Mundy, Al, uh, who's come on this podcast a number of times and he's just one of the great people in footy. Wonderful footballer, wonderful person. I used to have to lock horns with him and tag him because we rated him so highly as a team. The coaching staff would always come to me and say, we need you to go to Dave Mundy. He just gets them going. His leadership's outstanding. His creativity, he's the big body in a stoppage, his vision, everything, just a lot of it fed off him way back then. And it still has all the way through his career. Great player, great career. And um, I'm sure Dave listens to this podcast all the time, Al. But uh, congratulations to him on, on an outstanding career. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly with you. Lionhearted, you know, second in the best and fairest last year, finishes on 376 games. And you calculate the number of kilometres he travelled, over 900,000 kilometres on flights for matches. Players from Perth, West Coast and Fremantle, who play exclusively their careers there, it, it's taxing. Not many of them get to that 300-game that milestone, let alone 376, what Shannon Hearn and Matthew Pavlich have, have done it. And, and Monday's 376, it's hard to see anyone playing more than that and, and arguably could have played on, I think, um, oh, yeah. beyond this season, the way he was going as well. We saw glimpses of that again on, on Saturday. Um, but his, you know, that running goal was a lovely moment, the moment with his family at the end, even him consoling his son and then trying to deal with his own emotions. It was yeah, left an unforgettable impression watching all of that at the end of the game and ultimately on the losing side. And Collingwood goes through to face Sydney, a side that they took on a few weeks ago at the SCG and they'll do it all again. And, and that's going to be a fantastic game of footy. But your man, Jordan Dugowie, you put it on him, Lingy. It's as though his ears were burning because he he's performing. He's delivering on what you demanded. You said you can't just go out there and, and be brilliant one week and, and put in a match-winning performance to be a champion player. You need to do that week after week after week. And surely when you do it in finals, the, that's magnified, isn't it? And that's what he's done the last couple of finals, Jordan, to go. Where, how have you viewed his, his work over the last few weeks and, and what does it do for his reputation as a footballer and his, and his value as a footballer? Yeah, superb by Jordan to go. Again, uh, he was last week best on ground and he was this week. It, it, it's, it's a maturity with which he's playing now. He's putting himself into situations where the game is is there to be won and it's around the middle of the ground. He's it's around um, breaking the game open and still bringing others into it. That's a great thing. He's not trying to do it all, but he is influencing it in, in a massive way. Um, he's done it all year too, which has been great where he, 
as he's evolved into more of a midfielder and a high-impact midfielder who can go forward, his maturity has just grown. What I hope, Al, um, and who knows what this, this season might still have two more monster games from him to come, but what I hope is he takes this season into his off-season and into his pre-season and there's a maturity in his professionalism off the field because if he can then launch again and go to a new level next year on a consistent basis, well, he can become one of the best players in the competition and has shown in these two finals that he can deservedly be spoken about like people used to prematurely do around Dusty Martin and these sorts of conversations. He does that next year over a whole season and continues it on into this final series beforehand. Well, then he is in the top five players in the competition. Um, but there needs to be a maturity around what he does off the field. But on the field for now, which is all that matters for the Pies in the next two weeks, oh, he has been he has been just a monster. And Sydney and John Longmire would just sit there having to plan around, well, what happens when Dugowie is coming up from half forward and doing this? What happens when he's starting as a permanent midfielder? Do we cover him? just the, the front of the stoppage so he doesn't burst through, but then we're conceding him a possession. If he's coming as a forward, do we go with him all the way? But then he's got a mid, uh, sorry, a defender up around the mid. All of these things are just going to give John Longmire and his team big headaches because he's been so brilliant in these first two finals and he's threatening to have a, uh, have a, a massive rest of the final series as well. Yeah, you go back a few weeks at the SCG and Sydney, particularly early in the game, was really able to deny Collingwood its free-flowing aggressive ball movement. And Craig McRae's encouraged it all year. I want you to pull that kick into the middle of the ground. I want you to take it on. But Sydney was able to force them wide and, and it took you know, guys like Josh Dacos to start getting their hands on the ball in the second half. And, and as much as they lost by four or five goals, Collingwood, they were coming hard at Sydney and it took some special efforts. The, the rampy bump on Meyer check when... It was a chance to kick the goal. I think it would have got the margin back to 22 and, and Collingwood had all the momentum, but it, it felt a closer game than the result showed in the end. So, yeah, I think Collingwood could go to the SCG with some confidence against the Sydney Swans as much as Sydney has demonstrated and built this degree of trust over the year with the way they've played and their reliability. It'll be interesting to see the way this, this game plays. How much do you think Craig McRae and Collingwood could take out of that loss at the SCG? Well, a lot. A lot because it's recent, one. So it's not like they like Geelong and Brisbane, I think, last played. Was it round four from a, from a yeah, guess? A long while back, yeah. yeah so th there's not a lot you can take out of that one. But for Sydney and Collingwood, you can take it uh, a heap out of it because it's so fresh. I also think, too, what Craig McRae would be reaffirming with his team is keep taking that one on. Sydney will shut it down and Sydney will get a turnover or two while you're trying to be really aggressive with your ball use and trying to get that run and trying to bite off that kick. They're going to get it. It's going to be hard. It's only going to be open for half a second, not one second. Or in fact, while it looks open, you go there and they're going to get a spoil in. He's just going to be, I, I don't care. Keep going there. Keep going there because we, I think Collingwood have shown an ability to mop up if a team does get one or two in and, and looks like it's going to be a turnover. They've managed to cover it um, with, with some of the phenomenal efforts of Maynard and Darcy Moore and these types of players, Jeremy Howe. They will cover a bit of a turnover when they're trying to be aggressive with their boys. But Mc, Craig McRae will be saying, 
if you keep going there and keep going there and keep trying to do it, eventually it will break open and opposition players get tired. And instead of it now only being open for half a second and we're early in the last or late in the third quarter, that kick opens up for two seconds and you can go bang. There, someone, Jack Crisp runs from behind, Josh Dacos runs from behind, get the overlap, away they go and it's a great deep entry and a Jamie Elliott or a Ginevan are all so dangerous at the moment. It will happen. But against Sydney, you're just going to have to keep trying it because they will cover it superbly for the majority of the game. You might not break the squads until the 27-minute mark of the last quarter, but Craig will be saying, you can break them. You've just got to trust yourself to, to keep going there. That's the only way. Um, it's going to be a brilliant game because Sydney will try and do it right back to Collingwood. You know, the speed with which Collingwood squeeze up and defend and really aggressive in their defence, well, Sydney are going to have to be brave to try and go back through that. And Sydney will be because that's the way they've played all year. But Collingwood are going to get some good looks too and some great turnovers. So can Sydney keep being as bold trying to get through that? that that's the beauty of that game. It's going to be as hot a prelim final as you'll see in a, in a terrific game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned with the Fremantle Dockers that they, you think they've got a bright future in the next couple of years. In the aftermath of the game, and, and much of this has been talked about even prior to that game, about where players could go and who could be coming to the Fremantle Dockers. We'll get to Luke Jackson in a moment, but Griffin Logue linked to North Melbourne. Blake Akers looks like he's going to be going to Carlton on a three-year deal. Rory Lobb uh, to the Western Bulldogs on what might be a four-year deal at around half a million dollars a season. Reportedly, his partner has already moved back to Melbourne. So there are varying circumstances at play here, but they're losing good quality players, the Fremantle Dockers. Um, why is it happening when you, you can see this window of opportunity that's there? Someone's going to have to explain that to me, Al. I, I don't know. I, I mean, Rory Lobb, Okay, so there might be a family situation, so I hesitate to have a real crack at him, but he's gone from the Giants wanting a better situation at Fremantle. Well, the situation he's in right now is as good as you can get. You've got a coach who has turned this list around and turned a rebuild around like lightning. He's got him playing finals and getting into the second week of finals way before anybody thought Justin Longmuir would when he took over. It's a young group that's only going to grow and get better. When you look at Andy Brayshaw's form, he's got another gear. Caleb Sarong, this finals has shown how good he is, but he's only going to get better. I mean, young off halfback, all these different players. Frederick, you're in a brilliant situation. So again, I, I temper it by if it's a if it's a really important family decision, sure, move to Melbourne. But if it's searching for a better situation, I don't get it. I don't. Is Blake Akers going purely by the length and of the contract and the money that's being offered? Um, is Logue the same? He thinks he's going to get more opportunity at North Melbourne. and all I wouldn't be leaving a situation like what you've got at Fremantle. They are on the rise. They, they have got an exciting six years, seven years ahead of them um, with a really great core of players. And um, they're only going to get better and better, I think, as... Those young players improve and they bring one or two others in. I, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea why you'd leave out. Think over the last three years, you could have been playing for, and, and this is going to sound like a real shot at these clubs, but it's just fact. You could have been playing for a North Melbourne. 
You could have been playing for an Essendon. You could have been playing for any one of those types of teams who have really battled with a rebuild. Um, can This coach is in, this coach is out, this coach is in, this coach is out. Instead, you landed at Fremantle where Justin Longmuir has just done a superb job. Rebuilds don't just happen and you don't just get guaranteed good coaches and good programs and, yep, let's get some draft picks and away we go. Now we're playing in a semi-final at the MCG. It, things have got to go right and you've got to have some wonderful people involved. That's what Fremantle did and are doing. Why would you want to leave that? I have no idea. Is that what modern footy clubs and coaches are up against, Lee, this almost individualism that maybe has crept into the game to a degree and that, you know, you'll want for a premiership and you'll want to have team successes perhaps in some cases, and I'm not isolating this to anyone that's part of this conversation in particular, but could there be examples now where players are more focused about individual life circumstances, financial return? Do those factors in some cases in modern footballers outweigh that desire to have collective success and win a premiership with a team? Well, it's a very short-sighted way of looking at it, if it is. And then your point you make, Al, is, is a good one. Yes, it's possibly the answer, but it is so short-sighted. If you really want to crunch the numbers, which players have the greatest longevity and have the most seasons in the, in the competition and therefore get paid the most money over their entire career, it is normally, in the majority, players who are part of successful teams. You get longer contracts. You So Jack Rewalt and Trent Cochin, if it was a team that had done no good for the last six years and they're going through their second rebuild in, in seven years and they're the age that they are, they get moved on. Instead, they have been part of and a huge reason behind this wonderful success of Richmond. And as part of it, they're going, we can launch again. We're going to get Taranto in, hopefully. We're going to get Hopper in, hopefully. We can, yes, Jack, you can stay and Trent, you can stay. And the longevity remains there, not to mention the legacy beyond their retirement, having been a big part of great team success and, and a huge club like, like Richmond helps. But that, that's that longer view. You have a longer career. You, if you have a longer career, you get paid more money. When your career finishes, you have greater opportunities, whether it be coaching, whether it be media, whether it is in the business world, running your own business because you've been part of success. That happens rather than thinking, oh, I can get, I can get the best little bit of money over there and then I'm going to jump from that one over to that one because there's a chance to get some best money. And they're not that individualistic view. In the long run, you're going to end up worse off unless you're a complete freak of a player and the like you're going to have a 15, 16 year career, no matter what. So I believe you're right, Al. I believe that's possibly the way it's going with more freedom of movement and watching American sport and that, yeah, I'm going to move here, move here, I'm going to maximize my money, but it's so short-sighted. Well, I think with Richmond, the example of Cochin and Rewalt that you've raised is, is exactly the example of what has made the culture at Richmond so successful, that, that willingness to sacrifice for, the number of players that they've had over the years during their premiership era have, have been players who would do whatever was required, perform their role for the team, didn't desire to be the best player in the team, wanted to be part of the machine. And if that now means in the case of two champions of that club that they have to pay for vastly less than, than they would probably ordinarily be paid, 
no problem if it means you can get a Taranto or a Hopper in as much as that. That's going to be a difficult thing to get done with with swaps and players will have to be part of that as well with, with draft picks. I don't think are going to be capable of getting those deals done. No, the trading's the, the, a different scenario altogether. But, I mean, I heard reported the other day, and I think it was Sam McClure, who we've, who we've both, we both know through media circles and usually has his ear to the ground really well, saying that Tom Hawkins' contract next year at Geelong is going to be $300,000. He's very, he was very, very confident on that. That's below league average. Now, this is a player who's just been named the All-Australian captain and is playing in a preliminary final and has kicked 50 or 60 goals again for the season, playing yeah, yeah. for 300 He's worth goals. so much more. But this is where you can be honest, Lingy, and you can fess up to the, you know, the plots of land and the, you know, getting your wood stacked <laughs> and the heads of cattle and Ford <laughs> Rangers that get dropped off quietly in backyards well, in the middle of the night and... Keep all those Geelong players happy. A few surfboards and fishing rods went Paddy Dangerfield's way, I reckon. See, I'm hoping that Hawk will one day just drop off some nice cuts of uh, cuts of beef for me. None has come my Nothing. way, Al. It's, oh, geez, You've got to go and do some farmhand work, mate. You've got to earn your keep. What's he running? Some Wagyu beef or something for you, oh, is he? I think he's, I think he's doing some nice stuff, Hawkey, but um, none of it's coming my way, Al. I'll tell you what might be going Fremantle's way, and that is Luke Jackson. Now, I'm not at all critical of Luke Jackson as a young player who's already showing glimpses of immense talent and played some fantastic games. And certainly Friday night wasn't a fantastic game from him. He was, you know, conspicuous by his absence, really. But a seven-year deal reportedly to go to the Fremantle Dockers on somewhere around $800 or more thousand dollars a year for a player that is young, talented, but we just don't know. How much of a risk do you think that is for Fremantle? Uh, big risk. Ring Collingwood, who just beat you, and say, honestly, would, if you had your time again, would you redo the Brody Grundy deal the way you did it? I, I hesitate to have Ruckman, and I think Luke Jackson, Jackson is more a Ruckman than a, uh, than a key forward. I think he's, he's a dangerous um, forward when he rests there, but he's more a ruckman. To have a ruckman on, you know, 800, 900 million a year for seven years locked away. Oh, gee, that makes me that makes me very, very nervous, Al. Um, I I don't love locking away that much of the salary cap on that type of player. Um, different superstar key forward, different um, game changing midfielder who um, is just phenomenal. I think there's a level of certainty around that type of player or some sort of certainty. Um, best defender in the, in the game, intercept defender, that type of thing. Yep, you start talking about it. But I don't know about whether you allocate that sort of percentage of your salary cap to a Ruckman and it works out perfectly. Um, yeah, I... I have my I've got a good one too, Lingy. Sean Darcy is a yeah. damn fine player. And of course, they'll be able to accommodate both of them and, and one can play in the ruck and the other one can go on, go forward and, and stretch the opposition defence. But it's these long-term contracts, particularly for key position players who can be injury prone and a young one too, who's yeah. yet to truly prove what he's capable of doing. His ceiling could be enormous. He could be one of the greatest players in Fremantle might be making an extremely wise decision here, but they themselves would have to acknowledge it comes with a degree of risk, I think. 
so when they're sitting around Al, this would be the discussion taking place is okay lob and Logue going and maybe with their blessing um because they want jackson so they need the salary cap freed up tabana good player not great Darcy is a lock in the ruck. I think he was, you know, certainly his name was mentioned, all Australian um, conversations and that sort of thing for the 40 or the 44. So it's it's predominantly as a forward going to Fremantle for Jackson. As I said, lob and low go. So that's what they're talking about is we lose that to get that. We get Tavener who is going to be solid there and, and it's Tavener and Luke Jackson. I, I don't see it, Al. I just don't fully see it yet. Um, Jackson has moments where he follows up after a hit out like he's five foot eight and he's an on baller and he picks it up and he'll fan and he'll move. And I think, oh, wow, there it is. That's, so that's, that's what they're going to pay the money for. But when I only see that one glimpse for an entire game or one or two glimpses for an entire quarter, where am I going to allocate my resources in the salary cap? Is it that sort of player or is it somebody like, so Clayton Oliver getting a long-term deal at Melbourne um, throughout the season. I think it was six years or it was seven years. I, I know what I'm getting. No Oliver, argument. Oliver. Yep. Just done. Yep. I can allocate that percentage of the salary cap to that player. Cause I know what that output is more than likely going to be over so that. It's like period. your blue chip shares versus your sort of speculative yep. risk shares that could be an enormous boon for you, but could almost send you bust if they go wrong. Well, and, and okay, let, let's look at key forwards as well, Al. And, and they're getting better and better earlier and earlier. But Charlie Kerno, when he first came to Carlton, oh, I'm paying him a million bucks a year for seven years. He was, I think, you know what, I'll give you an even better one. When Jesse Hogan won the Rising Star, I was uh, working on radio and I said something idiotic like, I think there must have been deals going around at that stage of this ridiculous seven years, $7 million thing talk. And I said, I'd give Jesse Hogan $7 million over seven years. He's just, <laughs> he's just a lock. It is guaranteed he's going to be a star key forward for your next 10 years. Well, that would have been money very, very poorly spent. A, mil- a million bucks a season for seven years. Key position players can be up and down early on. The key position players can take time. Tom Hawkins in his first five seasons was in and out of the team, or even in his fifth season when he dominated the grand final, had been dropped twice that year. So you wouldn't want to have been paying him a million bucks a year in his fifth season, but then he got better and better and better and better, and, and away he went. Uh, Luke Jackson's in season number two. Three, yeah. three, three. So say he hits his peak in season number seven, which is about when a key position might start hitting his peak. So three to four years more of 800 odd, $900,000 a year, and you're getting four to $500,000 worth of output from him. It's, it's, it's a huge risk. Al. I, I don't love my my resources being allocated to that for the salary cap. That's yeah, all. I, I think it's a risk as well. And then Melbourne potentially going to take Brody Grundy off Collingwood's hands. It'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Obviously, Melbourne wouldn't be looking to pay 
full freight if that was to occur. Can you remember how, how many times we always said, Gorn or Grundy, who's the best ruckman in the comp? Gorn or Grundy, who's going to be all Australian? I think they were both all Australian in one or two years. To have them on the same team, not a bad little combination. The, my only worry for me on that one is that they are both more full, a big percentage of the game ruckman than, than true forwards. I think Max Gorn's turned himself into a good threat forward, but he's at his best when he's more a, an 85% ruckman. Um, and Grundy's certainly that as a, a, almost a big on baller. Um, but yeah, if you get him for um, not a hundred cents in the dollar, you get him for, I don't know what you'd pay, what they pay, but to call it 70 cents in the dollar. That's, that's worth a take. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's still a very good player, Brody Grundy. Uh, give me a tip for this weekend then, Lingy. Have you, you wrapped your head around it? How confident are you in Geelong? Yeah. Early tip. I think the, I, I think the cats will be good enough. I, I've been, so impressed with them all year. Um, the way they found a way in that first final, despite not quite being at their best and Collingwood being very good, was impressive as well. Two games clear plus percentage to finish the home and away. They have been the best team all year. I think they'll get the job done. Yeah. But it's going to be a big test. You know what? I, I, I've been so slow, or not slow, just hesitant with Sydney that to really go crazy on them. They were the most impressive in week one of the finals out of all the teams. As much as we were celebrating the, the brilliant Brisbane win and the great Cats-Collingwood game and everything like that, Sydney were the most impressive. So I have to go with that form. But I wouldn't be surprised if I look ridiculous with that and Collingwood get up. But I, I will, at this early stage, tip the Swans. Um, but that's a toss of the coin one for me. Yeah. Mate, great chatting to you. Have a top week. Thank you, Al. Whether you or not, next week we are talking about the uh, the hype and build up down the highway as Geelong heads towards another grand final. There's a bit to play out. I, I think honestly, you could make a case for any of the results across the course of the weekend. I was definitely taken with what Brisbane did, and I, I have to put my hand up and say I didn't think they were capable of it. But let's see, live and free Friday night. You'll see it uh, on the screens of seven. Geelong and Brisbane at the MCG. And then Saturday in the twilight from the SCG, it's the Swans and Collingwood. That's the preliminary finals. Two spots left. All of, our, all of our listeners will be angry at me if I don't ask you for a tip, Al. Oh. <laughs> I was Come hoping on. you wouldn't because I, 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 <laughs> everything you said, I agree with wholeheartedly. So with your head, if you're going with your head and you're going on form and based on body of work and trust factor, I think you have to say that that Geelong and, and Sydney are going to win. Their back-end season form, Geelong right the way through, but Sydney at the back end of the season, so compelling with its form and really hard to find a chink in their armour as well. And they play with this almost intangible commitment to the cause. It's it's that secret tonic that every club wishes it had, I reckon, every single player, no matter what ability, top to bottom through that team, knows exactly what needs to be done and will do whatever they can for the cause. There's just something in Brisbane, though. I was so <laughs> impressed with their second half and their yeah. hunts. If they could replicate that, they could beat Geelong. But if you ask me for a tip, and this is a very, very long way around of getting there, I'll go Geelong and Sydney. But I think Brisbane's capable and Collingwood are also capable of causing an upset. So. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. 
The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 